Second Peter chapter one. Peter chapter one. We are going to continue, as I said last week, making our way through Second Peter since we had just begun uh, this book. And uh, we are picking up in verse 12 this morning, and I just want to read from chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 12 to verse 15. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, then we'll read to verse 15. Peter's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful for this day. We are grateful for your saving work particularly in the life of Peter, raising him up and making him a pillar of the church. As we read his words here, we are reminded of the things that he thought were most important. We see here that as he's coming to the end of his life, he is most concerned with the Christians who will remain and those who will come after him. He is laboring not just for himself. His life is not only about his own salvation. But he made his life about glorifying Christ and preaching the Word and teaching the Word in such a way that the church would be established in truth even after he was gone. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would have this mind in us. That we would rejoice and glorify God in Christ. Because you have saved us. That we would labor and be diligent to confirm our own calling and election. But that we would not only be thinking of ourselves, but thinking of our brothers and sisters in Christ now and those who will come after us. That the works that we pursue in our lives, that the gospel efforts would be those that remain even after we have gone so that those who come after us would have a firm foundation upon which they can continue to build. And so, Father, give us this mind, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around Christianity at any, or for any length of time, you know that sometimes the Christian life is described as a race. This comes, of course, from Paul's writings, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, where he says there, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
This is a uh, fitting image, of course, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it implies that there is a reward at the end of the race. Paul goes on, in fact, to speak about the crown of righteousness that he will receive for keeping the faith and that all will receive who have loved the appearing of Christ, who have who've hoped in him. But this image can, I think, also be tweaked somewhat to capture some of the other important aspects of the Christian life. Paul's use of the image here is intentionally very personal. It's very individualistic, and, and, and I say that not in a bad sense, but just in the sense that he's, he's thinking about his own reward. He's thinking about what is to come when he has finished his own race and the reward he will receive. But I'd like to suggest this morning that we also conceive of the Christian life not simply as an individual race, but more so as a relay. A relay race, I think, would would capture more of the emphasis that Peter has here in this passage that we've just read this morning. In a relay, you are, of course, not the only runner. You're on a team. And uh, you have parts in the race. You have a role. You have a certain section in the race that you are responsible for running. You may be uh, the second runner. You may be the first runner. You may not be the anchor. You may not be the very last runner who is the one who's going to cross the finish line and bring the race to a conclusion. There may may still be more of a race to follow after your part has finished. And of course, depending on your particular skill set, you may not be the one, uh, again, who, who anchors the finish, you may be strategically placed at another point in the race. You may not be the one who hears all of the the thunderous applause of the crowd once you have crossed the finish line. But even though that may not be you, your role in the race is still nevertheless important. It's it's vital, the, the accomplishment of the race. If you're the first runner, you, of course, want to make sure that you get a good start, right? You get as far ahead in the race as possible so that you can give your teammate a, a jump start, right? You can give them an advantage when they begin. Or as a team, you may know that one of your runners is the slowest of them all, which doesn't mean that he's unimportant, but it does mean that you're going to have to think strategically about where you place him in the race, right? Perhaps you place him in the second position because you know that the first runner is one of your fastest runners, and once the second runner finishes, at least you'll be maybe even with the other teams you're, you're running against. But regardless of what point in the race you're in the race cannot be won. It cannot be finished unless every single person finishes their particular part in the race. You may be first, you may be second, you may be the one, and if you think about how relays work, you may be the one whom everyone else forgets about by the time the race is over. Nobody ever remembers who's the second runner in the race. You're you're paying attention as a crowd to to the finish line and and that last sort of uh, section of the race. But again, nevertheless, your role would still be vital. And, And I think we need to think of our own race, our Christian life in these terms. We need to see ourselves more like the second or the third runner in a much longer race. We are those who have received a baton. We have received the gospel from those who have gone 
before us. And our role in the race is to carry the baton to the next runner without any thought of seeing the finish line. We are those who, as the race continues, may be forgotten. But our part in the race is still no less important. The Apostle Peter, in the passage that we just read this morning, is not thinking primarily here about the end of his own life, though that is certainly there in the text. He is thinking, though, primarily about what is to come for the Christians after him. When his part in the race comes to a conclusion, how will they fare? How are these remaining Christians going to do? How are those who come after him going to hold up? And what is he doing now so that when his part is over, they will be ready to take the baton and continue running long after he's gone? So as we look at this passage together, I want you to think about this image this morning and our role in the race. And and as we do, I want to give you four rules for the race of the Christian Life. These are rules that we are to keep in mind as we run this relay that spans the whole of history. That, at least in our part, on this side of the cross, begins at the cross and the resurrection of Christ and continues on until he returns. Four rules. And the first rule for the race is this. Don't ever drop the baton. Don't ever drop the baton. Or if we can just leave the metaphor for a moment, don't abandon the gospel. Don't modify it. Don't throw it away. Don't forsake the gospel. I want you to notice with me again what Peter says in verses 12 to 13. He has just spoken to these Christians here of their salvation, of the grace of God in granting them faith and giving them all things they need for life and godliness. And he has exhorted them to pursue this godliness all their life. And then he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, literally as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by way of reminder. Now, what what is one of the things that Peter's acknowledging here? He's acknowledging that these Christians have the truth. They know the truth. They've received the truth. They've been established in the truth. They understand and affirm and recognize and believe in what the Christian life requires of them. They've heard this message from Peter before. But Peter knows that there is still always a danger. There is a spiritual battle. There will be false teachers and false Christians. There will be those who distort the gospel of Christ. And in their distortions, they will lead many people astray. They will cause people who at least at one time were running the race and who appeared to be running the race well to drop the baton. And Peter does not want that for these believers. He wants them to remain established. And so what is his method? 
remind them. To remind them over and over and over again. You've heard this before. You know the truth. You are established in the truth. You still need to hear the truth all the more. You still need to be stirred up all the more. What will it matter if you run the race of, the, of, of, of life, if you will? What, what will it matter if you run this race and you leave that which makes it Christian behind? What will you gain? What will be the outcome of that? What will you have at the end to show for it? What is the point of running the race if Christ is not in hand and Christ is not the end? The only thing you will have at the end of that kind of race will be an abyss of darkness and judgment. The most fundamental aspect of the Christian race is the one that we too often and are so often prone to neglect and to forget about and to just take for granted. We get wrapped up in all the cares of the world. What's coming of the country? Where's all this moral chaos coming from? What's going on? We're in meltdown mode. The churches are a disaster. What are we to do? The problems seem so large and overwhelming. We're overwhelmed with the anxieties and the cares of the world and we forget and leave behind the most fundamental message of all, the gospel of Christ. And what is one of the most central, fundamental tenets of the gospel of Christ? Jesus is king. Not will be king. Not was once king. Jesus is king seated on the throne all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me he reigns there's nothing on this earth that is taking place that is taking place apart from the sovereign hand of jesus the king that is one of the most central proclamations of the gospel. And we are to hold on to that throughout the entire course of our lives, continue to trust in it, and continue to proclaim it even if there is darkness all around. If our government was to crumble, if a war was to break out, if there was death all over the place, as there is in so many parts of the world where there are Christians, would we abandon the faith or we, would we continue to proclaim the kingship of Christ? He rules now and all things which are occurring are occurring under his sovereign hand. We hold on to that. We don't abandon it without ever letting go of the baton. And you do so knowing that Jesus the King has already determined the outcome. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he's told us how all things end. Let's use an economic example. Let's say, for example, you had an investment to make. You knew that if you put this certain amount of money into this particular company, you invested in this company, you knew without a shadow of a doubt 
that within 20 years' time, it's going to multiply a thousandfold. That's a pretty good investment. Now, what if in the fifth year, that investment tanks to near zero? But you know what the end is. You're going to panic? No, you're not going to panic. You know how all things come to a conclusion. And it is the same for the Christian in our own lives, in our race. There may be all kinds of things going on in the world that cause us anxiety, cause us concern, things that we may indeed need to put forth effort in, in, in reforming. But we are not to allow them to shake us to the point that we forget the central tenet of the gospel, which is that Jesus is king and he rules now and forever. So don't drop the baton. Second rule, second rule for the race is this. Run until you die. Run until you die. Run until you have no more breath. The race does not end as long as we are breathing. There is not a point at which we should slow down or stop. There are no bathroom breaks. There are no periods for recovery. You run until your part in the race is over. The Apostle Peter did not reach a certain age and then decide that his days of laboring as a Christian for other Christians was now over. There's no retirement age for the Christian. You retire from your work when you die. Peter said again in verse 13, he said, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter knew that his death was imminent. His days were numbered. He was beyond the latter half of his life. But that did not mean for him that it was time for him to take off his shoes and relax. It didn't mean that now was the opportunity for him to travel the world, to have endless vacations, to have wonderful walks on the beach, to collect seashells, as John Piper once said, right? to waste the rest of his life in endless idleness. That's not Peter's vision of the Christian life. No, how he would die eventually was by being crucified upside down. And Jesus had told him that this day would come. In John chapter 21, verse 18, he said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And we're told that Jesus was speaking to Peter of his death, which would come at a Roman cross. Which tells us also, at a minimum, friends, that Peter's ministry, his Christian walk, continued all the way down to the day he died. He didn't stop ministering. He didn't stop bearing witness to Christ. Obviously here, he did not stop serving the church or exhorting the people of God and reminding them to be faithful unto the end. This reminds me, as I was thinking about this passage as well this week, it reminds me of my, my own grandfather, my, my Pawpaw, who's an evangelist for much of his life, started various ministries as well. But, of course, at a certain point, he just got too old. He can't see anymore. 
He could barely hear. But his ministry didn't stop altogether. His Christian life hasn't ended. It's just that now his ministry has, has changed to fit his physical capabilities. Every morning, he wakes up and he takes a short walk down to this little lake that's probably not even a half mile away from their house. And he goes there and he, he finds this little bench and he sits on the bench and he prays and he waits. And he waits for somebody to come by who he then is going to talk to. And he's going to talk to them with a very specific intention of talking to them about Jesus, telling them about the King, and telling them about the gospel of salvation. Many people have come to faith by a providential encounter with an old man on that bench. His ministry has not ended. It's just changed. He is continuing as long as he has breath to bear witness to the gospel of Christ. Just as Peter's ministry did not end until he put off altogether his earthly tent. And so must it be the case with us. We must run the race until our part in the race has come to a complete end. And at that point, and at that point only, will we hand off the baton and stop running. We stop when the Lord tells us to stop. And he tells us to stop by giving us rest from our labors in his eternal kingdom. So we run, friends, we run the race of the Christian life all the way until we die. Third, third rule, run with all your strength. Run with all your strength. When someone runs a race, if at the end of that race you were to see that there is not a drop of sweat on them, they are not out of breath, they're not hunched over, placing their hands on their hips, or even laying on the ground, if they finish the race and just immediately go about the rest of their day, would you think that they ran hard? <laughs> no. You could tell by their lack of exhaustion that they didn't even try. Maybe they said they tried, but they're faking tried because they're not even tired. They haven't worked hard at all. Worst of all, if someone like that is on your team, if you are in some way dependent on that person's performance, you probably wouldn't be too happy. You'd be furious at the lack of effort that they gave in the race. You'd have much more ground to cover or less time to do it in. Well, the Christian life is to be run with maximum effort. I want you to remember from last week in verse 10 where Peter said, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And then Peter uses the same word again when he says in verse 15, and I will make every effort. The same word for diligent. I will be just as diligent. I will work just as hard so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. It's a word that he uses that, that basically refers to doing your best. I'm going to do my best. 
And when you do your best at anything, right, what, what are you doing? You're thinking about the matter, you're strategizing about the matter, you're practicing whatever it is, you're disciplining your body to do your best at whatever it is. And Peter says that he's doing everything he can to fix the truths of the gospel and the Christian life within the minds and hearts of the people of God. He wants them to be able to recall these things once he is gone. Once he can't tell them about these things any longer. And so what is he going to do? Again, he's going to remind them and remind them and remind them. He's going to speak to them over and over again about Christ. He's going to live his own life about Christ. He's going to do everything for Christ and his people. And this is what we are to do as well. This is our model. We have a part. We have a role in the race. We are not, as individuals, the only people in the race. Christians who come after us will be affected by how we live our own lives and Christians we run with now will be affected by how we're running the race. And I want to ask you, just as a sort of rhetorical question this morning, to ask yourself the question, what is your own Christian life communicating to others about your efforts? When other Christians, maybe here, maybe even outside of here, look at your life, do you think that their assessment would be, they're running hard. They're working up a sweat. They are zealous. They are obviously pursuing Christ with all their strength. Would your life stir up others to follow Christ all the more? Would they look at it and go, I'm falling way behind. I need to step up my game. I need to run harder because this person is carrying way too much load. Would their life, would your life stir theirs up? I think any of us, of course, can be complacent. Any of us can be apathetic and lazy, but we all need to be stirred up. We need to be challenged. This is one of the things, in fact, we are commanded to do as Christians for one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, for example, says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You're supposed to stir me up. I'm supposed to stir you up. It's supposed to be a constant stirring up of one another. This morning, Harrison was telling me he's got a meeting. Sets up with a, with a Mormon. I'm like, stirring me up. Need more Mormon conversations. Need more evangelism. Someone's got a passion for the word. It stirs me up. I hear someone pray their, their heart. They're pouring their heart out. It stirs me up. I need that. Or I can, I can be apathetic. I can grow complacent. I can just start drifting. I need to be around the body of Christ stirring me up. That's what we need. We provoke one another. Not to anger, but to loving good works. We need each other to live a zealous Christian life so that it provokes us all the more to be zealous 
and faithful to the Lord. Is that what you are doing? Are you making every effort? Are you running hard? Or have you turned the race into nothing more than a casual stroll down the beach? Friends, I say this not just to you again, but to myself. Let us run hard. Peter says, I'm making every effort. Have it always on your mind. Talk to others. Strategize. How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I raise my kids better? How can I be more faithful to Jesus? I'm not doing all of this because I I need this in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'm trusting in the Lord for that. But I don't want to be lazy. I want to honor Him who has given His life for me. How do I do that? Well, let me talk to you. You talk to me. We strategize. We stir each other up to be all the more diligent and to run the race all the more hard. Fourth, and the last rule for the race. Run for the anchor. Run for the anchor. In a relay race, the race is not over when the first runner hands the baton to the second runner. It's only over when the final runner The anchor receives the baton and crosses the finish line. We have to run the race as if we're not the anchor. As if we are not those who are going to be at the conclusion of the race when Christ returns in the full blazing glory of His appearing. We have to run as if the race will continue on once our part in it is complete. Which means that there will be others who must run the race after us. We have to hand off the baton to them. And they have to complete the next part of the race, however long that may be. Which means also that everything we do in our lives now must not only have heaven and eternity for ourselves in mind, but also the saints on earth who come after us. This is how Peter was thinking. He says in verse 15 again, and I will make every effort so that After my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is concerned about the generation of Christians who will remain or come after his death. He wants them to be completely rooted and grounded in the faith. He wants them to do well once he's gone. So everything that he's doing in his life now, at this moment, is for them. He's about to die and he's writing this letter. He's ministering for them. He's running with the baton at hand. And he's doing so that he can hand it off to the next generation. And so that when they receive it, they're not receiving it with a disadvantage, but with an advantage. This really should, I think, as well be the mindset of every single pastor. We have far too many pastors that treat the ministry as if it's about building a kingdom for themselves. It's about their name. It's about their fame. It's about their recognition. They would shrivel under the weight of pride 
if they had to labor in obscurity. We have far too many more who hop from church to church quicker than rabbits, all while proclaiming that the local church is so important. And we need to be planted in it and rooted in it. They build a kingdom for themselves. And then once they're gone, it crumbles. And some of these massive kingdoms have crumbled even before they've gone. I mean, we've had horrible, horrible things that have occurred within the last 10 or 20 years with some of the the major mega celebrity pastors that are out there who have, you know, 50 campuses across the, the globe. Because they were full of pride, they departed from the gospel. And as soon as they departed, the whole thing crumbled. But that's not what we're after. That's not what a pastor should be pursuing. A pastor must fundamentally labor for others. He must labor for those whom he's among now and labor for those who will come after he's gone. I mean, I've said this before. I would long for the day to come when little Lois is born, right? The Hinkson, out of town this week. She grows up in this church. We get to watch her grow up, come to faith from, from, from infancy until she, she gets older. She believes. Maybe she stays here. And, and I die having seen her grow up under godly parents in this church. Greatest day. The Carters, the Davenports, to be here and to witness multiple generations of of families. Grandparents, great grandparents. That's the goal. That's what we want to work for. I think at times we get so wrapped up in a good aspect, a good aspect of Christianity and the gospel, that that Christ has saved me, that he gave his life for me. We we, we want to celebrate that. That's one of the central features of the gospel. But we forget so easily that history doesn't end with us. It continues on. And pastors, especially in churches, need to be laboring for what's going to come in 10 years. 20 years or 30 or 50 is to strive for his name to no longer be remembered once he's gone, but for Christ's name to be exalted in the generations that follow him. But I think in addition to, to pastors, this should be the task, the rule for every Christian parent as well. You run the race for your children and and then your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. They may be the ones who are the anchor in the race, the, the ones who finish it. They may be the ones who remain when Christ returns. And you have to think, what is it that you're handing off to them? What's the the gospel baton that you're passing on to them? And is it advancing them? Or is it disadvantaging them? We have a range of of people here. We have have some with grandchildren, some with older children, some with young children, some with children on the way. Every step along the way, we have a part in the race in handing off the baton to them. Those who are grandparents or who will be grandparents. I know you're often told that uh, 
you know, your job is to spoil your grandchildren. That's not true. You can spoil them a little. But you have an even greater task than that. More than anything, you need to pour into them the wisdom of age and walking with Christ for many, many years. That, that comes with, with wisdom. You probably don't get to see them often as, as well. That seems to be the case that most grandparents don't, or at least not as often as, as parents do. And so you need to be intentional in sharing the gospel with your grandchildren whenever you're around them. Right? That, that, of course, may not be the only thing that you speak to them about. You speak to them about other things. But don't let those moments go to waste. Again, I'm, I'm grateful for having a family that I've had where I knew that even as an unbeliever, when I go over to Nana and Pawpaw's house, I know one of the things I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear about Jesus. I'm going to hear about the gospel. I'm going to hear about the Bible. That needs to be what you do. As grandparents, you, you pour into the lives of your grandchildren by constantly taking every opportunity you have to share them the hope, share with them the hope of Christ. And your grandchildren need to know that every time they're around you, they're going to hear about your king. Parents, the same, thing, the same thing can be said of us. We are um, most responsible for teaching and training our children in the fear of the Lord. Right? That's explicitly stated, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That's our responsibility. At every age, from their school, you can't even understand the words that you're saying. It wouldn't even be great if, like, the first words they ever said was Jesus. That's, like, almost never the case, but that'd be something. Like, that's going to be an evangelist. You, you want to share the gospel with them early? You know, teach them the word of God? But even when they're older, when they've, when they've gone, you continue to pour into them the hope of the gospel and the word of God. Children's knowledge of Christ will largely be shaped by what they learn from us. Some of us, no doubt, came to faith later in life, and so our knowledge of God and the gospel has been shaped largely in our adult years, but that's not what our goal is to be. Right? Sometimes we, we sort of formulate ethics and what's right and wrong about or how, how we should do things based on, you know, I came out okay. That's not the goal. We shouldn't want our children to grow up and to give themselves over to the world, and then, Lord willing, they'll repent and, and be saved. And I think the best model, what we have to strive after, is that of Timothy's lineage in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That's our model. A legacy of faith. Teaching our children young, sharing the glorious truths of the gospel with them early, praying with them, praying for them, seeing them embrace Christ, and then carrying that baton forward to their children after them. We have to have this mind within us that the race will continue long after we're gone. So the things that we do now need to be not only about the things that are going on now, but the people who will come after us. Whether that be our children, whether that be our family, 
whether that be our church here or elsewhere. The race is long, and we have to run for those who are coming after us. As long as we have breath within us, we are to stir one another up to these things. And I'm grateful that especially, I think, in the last several months, we've had many, many conversations about how to do these very things. How to disciple our children well. We may not have the, all of the answers now, but at least if we can give a better foundation now for those who are to come. The progress of the gospel, the progress of the race, will be that much more strong. Let's pray this again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the Apostle Peter and the redeeming work he did in his life, <coughs> taking him from a man who was very confident in himself and then falls in denying Jesus. And then you make him a pillar of the church, a pillar of faith an apostle of the church, and he gives his life until his very last breath for those whom he had been among and those who would come after. And Lord, in the same way, you have saved us from our sins. And we desire that this gospel-saving work would continue beyond us. So I pray, Lord, that you would Stir us up by your word to run the race with all of our effort and to run for those who will come after. I pray this in Jesus' name.